This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Why are so many Americans trying to destroy American culture? During the first half of the 20th century, an anonymous commentator described the importance of culture by comparing the British and the Americans. An Englishman, he said, walks as if he owns the world. An American walks as if he doesn't care who owns the world. Assurance has always been the hallmark of the American culture. We might be right or we might be wrong, but we are always sure of ourselves. That doesn't appear to be true anymore. The culture of assurance has become the culture of fear. Too many of us are afraid to say what we think. We are afraid of the growing power of the Chinese, global catastrophe, and a deteriorating economy. Our so-called leaders are afraid to make decisions. This episode of the Return to Order Moment looks at the developing American culture. We start in a general way by looking at the idea of culture itself. The founder of the international TFP movement, Plenio Correa de Alavera, described the idea of culture in his essay, What is culture? All that enhances the mind. What is a culture? People answer this question in many different ways. Some are inspired by philology, others by all kinds of philosophical and social systems. So many contradictions have arisen around defining culture, and the related word civilization gives rise to so many conflicts that international congresses of scholars and professors have met especially to discuss their meaning. After so much discussion, it often happens that no agreement is reached. In this short article, we cannot address the theses and arguments of the various currents, nor can we expound and justify our thesis and then focus on Catholic culture. However, we can seriously consider the countless meanings of the word culture as expressed by peoples, social classes, and schools of thought, and show what they have in common. Thus, one basic and invariable element of the notion of culture is that it always involves the improvement of the human mind. At the heart of this improvement is the idea that every human mind has qualities susceptible to being developed and defects liable to being curtailed. Therefore, improvement has two aspects. A positive one, growing what is good, and a negative one, pruning what is bad. This principle unites the many current ways of thinking and feeling about culture. Thus, we all agree that a university, music conservatory, or theater school are cultural institutions. We can even extend this to clubs dedicated to chess or stamp collecting. All these entities or social groups aim directly or indirectly at improving people's minds. Likewise, we can imagine a university or other cultural institution that works against culture when it acts to deform minds due to its errors. For example, certain schools are driven by an exaggerated enthusiasm for technology, to the point of instilling contempt for all things philosophical or artistic. A person thus educated adores mechanics as a supreme value, making it the soul's only sphere of influence. A student who denies all certainty not based on the laboratory evidence and contemptuously rejects all things beautiful undoubtedly has a twisted mind. 
Similarly deformed is someone driven by an immoderate philosophical appetite, which denies any value to music, art, poetry, or more modest activities that also require intelligence and culture, such as mechanics. We can say that universities that form their students with such false guidelines promote anti-cultural action or a fake culture. Fencing, for example, is recognized as an exercise of some cultural value because it presupposes physical dexterity, vivacity, and elegance. However, common sense is unwilling to acknowledge the cultural character of boxing, which has something demeaning for the mind as it targets the face with massive and brutal blows. Current language includes improving the soul and the notion of culture in these senses and many others. At first glance, the distinction between education and culture is less clear as a general concept. However, analyzing things well, we see this distinction exists and rests on a solid foundation. A person who reads a lot is said to be very cultured compared to another who reads little. Between two avid readers, the one who has read the most is presumed the most cultured. Education aims to improve the mind. Thus, a person who reads more is deemed more educated, except when there are reasons to the contrary. Thus, some people might err by inadvertently simplifying notions and considering culture as measured by the number of books read. That is blatantly wrong because reading is measured not in quantity, but in the quality of the books read. It depends upon the traits of the readers and how they read. In other words, reading can theoretically educate people by making them well-informed. Thus, a well-read and educated person may be informed of many facts or scientific, historical, or artistic concepts. However, that same person may be much less cultured than one with a lesser informative background. Thus, the distinction between education and culture becomes apparent. Education only improves the mind to the fullest extent possible when followed by profound assimilation resulting from accurate reflection. Accordingly, those who read little but assimilate a lot are better educated than those who read a lot but assimilate little. For example, a museum guide is generally very knowledgeable about the objects he shows visitors. However, he is frequently not very cultured because he limits himself to memorizing information and does not try to assimilate it. Everything we grasp with our senses or intellect affects the powers of the soul. We can free ourselves more, less, or even entirely from this effect, depending on the case. But as such, each and everything we grasp tends to have an impact on us. As we said, culture consists of positively cultivating those things that enhance the mind and negatively curbing those things that deform it. Of course, Reflection is the primary means of enhancing the mind. A man of culture must be a thinker far more than a bookworm or a living repository of facts, dates, names, and texts. For this thinker, 
Reality is the primary book he has before his eyes. He is his most consulted author. Other authors and books are precious but subsidiary elements. However, mere reflection is not enough. We are not pure spirits. By an affinity that is not just conventional, there is a link between the superior realities that we consider with our intellect and the colors, sounds, shapes, and perfumes we grasp through our senses. Our cultural effort is only complete when, through the senses, we imbue our whole being with the values that our intellect has contemplated. Singing, poetry, and art have precisely this purpose. Indeed, through an accurate and superior interplay with the beautiful, rightly understood, of course, the soul is fully imbued with truth and goodness. For generations, the primary means of bringing culture to the young was the school. The role has been largely abandoned because the people who run the schools are no longer sure about the value of American culture. Once schools were about opportunity, they promised young people access to horizons far beyond those of farms and small towns. Learning, the teachers promised, was the key to the future. Today, some teachers make the future look rather grim. Too many of today's lessons focus on fear and uncertainty. Mr. Edwin Benson illustrates this idea in his essay, Do American Schools Imprison Our Children in the Depths of Despair? Quote, Strong evidence is emerging that we are mostly succeeding in creating a generation of overwhelmed young people paralyzed into learned helplessness. Unquote. Robert Pondicio of the American Enterprise Institute provides this harrowing conclusion. He spelled out the supporting logic in a recent article in Commentary Magazine with the compelling title, The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling. Two forces working against each other dominate most modern schools. The first is the testing regime. As achievement declined, the education bureaucracy reacted with increased standardized testing. Soon, test strategies became a significant focus in many schools to measure progress. However, other voices recommended a contrary strategy. They argued that the real problem lay in the children's mental states. Children in emotional distress, they argued, were ill-prepared to learn. Thus, the testing regime only provided children with another sense of failure. A new crop of student advocates say that schools should become therapeutic communities where fostering well-being trumps the search for knowledge. The sources of anxiety are not lacking. COVID, new developments of the sexual revolution, and critical theory provide the advocates with unlimited ammunition to promote their programs. The result is a school system that focuses on students' problems, both actual and potential. Mr. Pondicio coined an apt term for it, the pedagogy of the depressed. Schools provide boundless opportunities for students to express their depression. English composition class encourages students to expound their problems. The more harrowing, the better. To help them understand that they are not alone, many literature classes often feature graphic so-called honest stories about young people who face similar problems. 
Environmental issues, especially so-called climate change, are prominent features in many science classes. Narratives of oppressors and the oppressed increasingly dominate history instruction. A new wave of action civics focuses on students' responsibility to help save the world. Health classes can focus on LGBTQ plus advocacy, with every student expected to join. Even mathematics instruction must become anti-racist. And if this weren't enough, enforcing COVID masking requirements often leads children to believe that not wearing a mask contributes to the deaths of friends, siblings, and even grandparents. Who wouldn't buckle under this emotional load? Eventually, Mr. Pondicio throws up his rhetorical hands. Education's highest object, he explains, is to nourish the soul and inspire human flourishing, not to be a hobby horse for either ambitious technocrats or social justice advocates. We've failed to ask the fundamental question, what is school for? Unquote. Indeed, why do schools exist? The most basic reason is to prepare children for adulthood. Schools teach fundamental skills that all adults need, the so-called three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Students also need training to be good citizens and thus learn civics and history. They should know about the natural world and how humans interact with it. That gives rise to science, health, and physical education. The final but most important and often neglected area of necessary knowledge is religion, a fourth R. Until the coming of so-called progressive education during the first half of the 20th century, most school curricula focused on those first three points. This system was astonishingly successful. By 1900, roughly 92% of American residents 70 million out of a total population of 76 million, were literate. The first half of the 20th century saw an immense expansion of the education system. States passed compulsory education laws. High school graduation became common. The number of school activities proliferated. Schools established college prep curricula for the academically inclined and vocational programs for those who were not. Education professors devised new teaching methods. Fleets of buses transported students from rural areas. Hot lunch programs ensured that impoverished students ate at least one nutritional meal a day. Counselors joined the faculties. In the 60s and 70s, the focus expanded further. Special education programs taught those who couldn't learn in regular classrooms. Head Start brought in disadvantaged children at the age of three. Dropout prevention programs encouraged high school students to hang on until graduation. New bureaucracies in each state oversaw this expansion. In addition, the federal government created the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in 1953, and then split off education as a separate department in 1979. Every new program, initiative, activity, and bureau diluted the original purpose of the schools. 
preparing the average student for life, became less important than meeting the needs of the poor and mentally handicapped. Student discipline focused on the needs of the misbehaving child rather than the education of the whole class. Administrators came to see teachers who maintained high standards as problems rather than assets. Student achievement declined. With each new report, a new program was born. Presidents, governors, blue-ribbon panels, state administrators, professors, superintendents, and consultants cobbled together strategies to facilitate learning. When none of these programs succeeded, another new idea always lurked around the corner. There is much to be said for Mr. Pondicio's analysis. Unfortunately, it has one major fault. He omits the most important reason for schools. Students need to learn about the great transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Students need to learn that objective truth existed before they did and will continue long after they are gone. This knowledge does two essential things. First, it tells students that they are not the center of the universe. At first, this might seem like it will deflate the child's sense of self-worth. The effect is the opposite. Shortly before the birth of our Lord, the Roman statesman Cicero wrote, To be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. Unquote. Growth is only possible by acknowledging that something better than oneself exists. Second, objective truth frees people from the prisons of their own lived experience. It shows them that a world exists far beyond the limits of their lives. This knowledge, in turn, encourages them to expand their horizons and search for a better life. Above all, the search for truth leads away from the slavery of sin to the ultimate truth found in God. Likewise, the search for good is ennobling. It enables people to seek their best selves by following the moral law. They can thus fashion a life in which their gifts, talents, skills, and temperaments simultaneously raise themselves and promote the common good. True beauty leads away from the squalor that traps too many children. Young people surrounded by crime Illegal drug use, promiscuity, and uncertainty do not need another dose of gritty reality. They gain nothing by hearing and repeating litanies of oppression. They need the best that the schools have to offer. They should be uplifted by storage of courage, self-sacrifice, and trustworthiness. They need a history that shows the progress of humanity over the ages. Unknowingly, they hunger for music and drama that transport them to higher thoughts and dreams. Education must open new horizons for students, not point them to ever more fatal realms of despair. Another source of uncertainty in modern American life is the increasing importance of computers and the Internet. A set of technologies that once looked like a helpful servant to humanity now takes on the appearance of being the master. In fact, the Internet has taken on a new name. Once humanity looked into the heavens and contemplated the mysteries of the universe, 
In the near future, we may sit at our desks, look at our computers, or through a set of goggles and gaze upon the metaverse. Mr. John Horvat considers the nature of the metaverse and its likely effects on human culture in his essay, The Lonely Metaverse, Virtual Heaven or Cyber Hell? There is a race to build the metaverse outside the real world. This new creation represents the next stage of the Internet, which will catapult the user beyond interacting with the virtual world via screens. The metaverse will immerse users inside its three-dimensional platforms via headsets. The metaverse is a virtual space where users can live out any fantasy they want. People construct their own identities, which now appear as avatars. They can take their self-identification beyond pronouns and choose to be any animal or thing and of any sex. Users can also construct their fantasy worlds, climbing mountains, landing on the moon, or sitting in a field of unicorns. There are no physical restraints or consequences of their acts. Later developments calls for skin suits that will allow people to feel their experiences in these unreal worlds. The meta-construction project is advancing full steam ahead. Vast sums of money are going into the development of these fantastic worlds. Advertisers are even buying space inside these creations to position themselves to make money. However, Few will be asking what the impact of this new, unrestrained world will be. Some experts question the effects of this psychological roller coaster on young people. They fear that it will become a dangerous place that will overwhelm an already distracted generation. Indeed, problems are already surfacing with the new world of the metaverse. Experts point out that the metaverse will be video games and social media on steroids. All the obsessive pleasures of these media will be amplified on these 3D platforms. Users will necessarily be role-playing in the metaverse and will suffer from the diminished self-esteem of pretending to be what they are not. They will suffer depression from body images in which they do not live up to the expectation attached to their own avatars. The increased perception of immersion will serve to isolate individuals outside of reality, thus creating colossal loneliness, which contributes to the possibility of suicide. Not only is the metaverse a lonely and depressing place, but it can also be a dangerous one. A Wild West atmosphere now prevails inside these fantasy worlds without policing. Anything can happen. Although the images in these worlds do not physically touch users, they can be regularly exposed to graphic sexual content, violent language, crude imagery, and harassment. Virtual sexual assaults have already happened. As the level of realism increases, these attacks will be psychologically and morally devastating. Since the content is in real time and not searchable, violent acts can be done without legal consequences. To make matters worse, 
tech companies will be targeting the highly suggestible demographic of young people as they roll out their metaverse. It will impact them at the most vulnerable period of their mental and emotional development. However, it will also hurt users of all ages, since the abandonment of reality to sink into fantasy destroys the moral fiber of the soul. Such considerations should be analyzed now, before the project develops. Products and medicine are tested before being released to the public. The Metaverse 2 should be thoroughly examined in light of the possible harm it can cause. However, the most critical question is why the Metaverse must be built at all. Something is terribly wrong in a society where the appetite for fantasy has reached this extreme point of creating unreal worlds. When people refuse to live inside the restraints of reality, to waste countless hours in the pursuit of nothing, there is a grave moral problem. People are made to live in the real world. All the mind's faculties are oriented in this direction, so that reality serves as a means to know God. Anything else serves to distort and deform the mind, wounding our rational nature, which makes us, quote, to the image and likeness of God. See Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This concludes... Why are so many Americans trying to destroy American culture? Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.